Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and joining us today is partner and director of wealth planning at Global Financial Partners, Brian Mastin. Thank you for joining me, Brian. Thanks. Happy to be here. So exciting to do these types of things. I love for our audience to hear uh, everybody's story. They're all so unique. And my favorite part is when I ask you to start us out with your journey and how you got to where you are today. Well, it's kind of funny. Everybody's journey is a little different, right? And, and mine, probably similar to a lot of others, comes with a lot of failure. Uh, that's, that's kind of how you end up where you are. And it's always about just kind of getting back up and moving forward when you have those failures. Um, we have them daily and we have to keep going. Uh, I started really looking at financial planning when I was in college and actually applied to a firm while I was still in college and before I had my degree. And thankfully, they came back and said, hey, why don't you finish up and get your degree before you start doing this? Well, by the time I got my degree, I actually had a job that was paying quite well. And I stayed with it after I graduated. And so really, I, I knew early on I wanted to be in financial planning, but it really got difficult to make that move once I graduated. So I did that job for a little while. Um, it was with a major telecom company. Uh, at some point, it got a little too corporate for me. And I decided I really would prefer to go out and start something on my own. And so I did that with a partner. And we started a uh, performance automotive business, believe it or not. Uh, did spray and bed liners and lift kits and all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, and that lasted about three years. And when we decided that, okay, this isn't going the way we want it to, we need to, we need to shut this down and move somewhere else, I went back to the financial planning kind of arena and started out with a, a major uh, household name. And, it, you know, it was okay. It, they, they did a really nice job of providing training. They got me licensed. We just didn't agree on how the business should be run. Uh, and unfortunately, I was an employee, so I didn't have a whole lot of say in how the business was run. So that lasted, again, about three years. And when I left there, I, I decided to go independent. And interestingly, I did a lot of looking. I, I probably interviewed with 15 different firms and finally decided that independence was the way to do it. I could build the book the way I wanted to build it. I knew it would be slow to build it the way I wanted to but it would allow me to end up with a book that I was proud of and that I was happy to have. And so that's kind of how I ended up in the independent space. I got lucky along the way with that independent broker dealer that I started with in that um, I also worked in the back office for them. So it allowed me to feed my family and at the same time grow my book on a fee-based kind of setup as opposed to having to look for that next commission in order to, to continue to survive. And so I could build that book much slower because I had that, that back office job. Uh, and I did that for about four years uh, before I went completely into the field and just started running the book uh, and then joined my partner within a year of that. And we have been working together ever since. So that's how I ended up here. 
You're right. Everybody has a unique story, um, and that's a fascinating one. So that's created a couple of other questions I have for you that I think our audience would be interested in. You opened the door when you talked about failure every day and having to move through it. I couldn't agree more. That's where we learn, no doubt. Can you maybe share what your biggest failure was today? Well, you know, I've had so many. That's a tough call. Which one was the biggest one? Uh, you know, I guess if I'm looking back at it from a from a cost standpoint, it would be that performance business going under simply because it just cost us a lot of money and time to get it to where it was. So that may be the biggest failure monetarily, um, but it was also the biggest learning experience. It was the first time that I could really control and own and make the decisions on a day-to-day basis. And I think if I hadn't had that opportunity when the chance came to go independent or to go work for somebody again, I don't know if I would have jumped to that chance to go independent because I had to make all those decisions again on my own. So even though it was probably the biggest failure from a time and and cost standpoint, uh, I, I don't regret it in any way. Great segue to another question I had as I was listening to you talk, which is, you know, the common theme in your story, even though you went from one industry to another to another potentially is um, that entrepreneurial spirit that you're describing as you talk. So what might be one or two things that you had to, you would recommend to anybody out there who's considering going into the independent side because they've been, they've spent some time in another segment of our industry two prep items, like what are the top two things that they definitely should do before they make that leap? Because I think we all agree when we, when I've talked to people about, you know, the day you decided to go independent is that it can be a little intimidating. And to your point, it is slow and there's a lot of stress points perhaps. So what are the top two things that you would recommend somebody make sure that they do? Uh, Number one, know what you want your business to look like. It's, it's kind of difficult at times when you're just starting to look down the road far enough to understand that when I do hit some level of success, I want my book to, to, to look a certain way. So be sure that you know what you want that book to look like so you have something to work toward because that's going to influence number two. And number two for me would be make sure you find the right partners. Uh, and in this case, you know, when we talk about being at one broker dealer versus another, clearly we have chosen Cambridge for a reason. I think Cambridge is the right partner for us. And I think it's important when you start that journey that if you know what the book's going to look like at the end, you can then really do your research and due diligence on which independent partner you're going to go with to get there. It's a great point. I do often find that uh, people who are considering joining us come in thinking that all independent partners, whether they're broker-dealer maybe financial solutions like Cambridge, whatever it may be, are the same. And the due diligence you're describing is really an important thing because I think what you can't find in a document of sorts as you're looking at who you should partner with is their culture. And your culture and our culture must be very well aligned um, because otherwise we probably wouldn't feel like a great partner. So talk about the culture of your firm that you and your partner have built. Well, it's interesting. We... (laughs) We decided a long time ago that, and and both of us independently, interestingly enough, when we looked at our book early on, it was, listen, if we're going to build this, I don't want the phone to ring and and it be, you know, whose turn is it now? That's just not who we want to work with. And so I know from a business standpoint, they would tell me it's really smart to set account minimums 
And then to make sure you're only dealing with clients above that account minimum. Honestly, our account minimum is do we like them and do they like us? And if the answer is yes, then we will find a way to help them somewhere along the way. Uh, it may not be in our traditional sense of a fee-based account and, and financial planning. Uh, it, it may be honestly that we don't even get paid to try and help them in some way, shape or form, but we, we try our best to find a way to help those folks as long as we align with them well. From the standpoint of us in Cambridge, it's interesting when we started looking at your four values, how well they aligned with what we consider our core values to be. In fact, we ended up stealing one of yours and we stole kindness when we list our core values. Um, and we did it because we think it's important. It's it seems as though there is a, a lack of kindness and understanding in the world. And so even from that standpoint, we thought it was good that, that you had it listed as a core value. So really the way we've tried to build our business is by being very transparent with our clients, um, by providing simplicity to our clients. We always want them to understand what it is we're doing for them. By being independent, we're, we're fiercely independent. Um, and by being kind. And we think that if we can do those four things and we can do those four things well, that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, when we look back at the book, we'll have a really good book of business that we can be really, really proud of. I love that. I too believe it's really important to enjoy the people you work with, work for, surround yourself with, even on a personal level. How, what kind of tools and strategies do you use to decide if you like a client? How does that work? Our initial meeting is typically where we'll do that. Our, our main conference room that we use for those meetings is set up with four lazy boy chairs and a big screen TV on the wall. And, and really what we're trying to do is we don't want anything separating us from the client. We don't want that table in between us. And we're trying to create an environment that's much more relaxed. Uh, and by doing so, we often find that clients will open up a little bit more and, and tell us a little bit more about their situation, their experiences in the past, what they've liked, what they haven't liked. Um, and we can really start to have an honest conversation about why they're there to see us. And so that allows us then to talk a little bit about who we are, what we believe in, and how we do things that we think is a little different. And, and it really starts to become evident fairly quickly whether we mesh with that client or we don't. Uh, it, it's interesting. We do everything as a team. We have three advisors in the office. We don't gang up on them. It's typically two advisors and the clients in any meeting. We do that so that they know everybody in the office. We want them at some point to be comfortable with anybody that they talk to. It doesn't matter which advisor it is. But we will often find that during those meetings, they tend to start to gravitate toward one personality type or another. And so as advisors, we have gotten better about when they start to gravitate toward my business partner, I'll just kind of step back a little bit and let him run that meeting. And he's very good at doing the same thing. So we find that, that by having a relaxed atmosphere and really open conversation early on, uh, we have gotten to where we're pretty good at judging whether it's going to be a good fit or not. And then you just have to have the, the nerve to tell somebody, listen, I just don't think it's a good fit. We can try to help you find somebody else. I just don't think we're right for you. You anticipated my next question, which is what happens when it's not a good fit. And have you ever had clients get angry with you? And uh, when you make that statement or how, you know, I, I heard what you said, but how does that happen functionally? We have done it and, and it can get uncomfortable. Um, I don't know that we've ever had anybody get angry. 
Uh, we did have a client at one point essentially beg us to take her as a client. It was a big account and against our better judgment, we did. And we regretted it almost instantly. Uh, and she stayed with us for about nine months and she was gone. So, it, you know, it just goes back to, we really need to believe our initial feeling on that and stick with that because it, it really does tend to work fairly well. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that's the only client that's ever left us. We, we have had clients that we think are a very good fit that have left us for one reason or another, uh, but it's not often a, a personality conflict kind of reason. So, but that's really what we do. We just try our best in a very kind way to tell them we just don't think it's a good fit and we think we can find you somebody else that may be better at helping you. It's a great example of what we were talking about earlier on failure, right? You had to fail maybe once with that doubting yourself and doubting, you know, that initial feeling to be able to realize, you know, we probably really do need to trust ourselves on that first meeting. Absolutely. The other thing that you touched on there is that you're running an ensemble. You're doing business as an ensemble, a team, if you will, which is probably the fastest growing, although still a very small percentage of practices and businesses now, not just at Cambridge, but in the industry, because the future generations or the current generation and the future generations certainly seem to gravitate towards team instead of solo individual. It's all, it's all me. Talk about how important it is to find the right partners. We just talked about how to find the right clients, but how you find that right partner, because what I heard you describe, which is my favorite part about ensembles, is that every client gravitates towards someone. And if you're a solo, you're not always going to hit that mark. And it's nice to have other people with you so that you can do what you described. Step back, let the person that they're naturally gravitating towards go ahead and take the lead on that. But talk about how, how you decided to do that and how important that structure is. Well, and, and I've got to give my business partner some credit on that because he's really the one that drove that at least initially. He's, a, he's older than I am. He's 65. I'm almost 50. Uh, and he was looking for a succession plan initially. And when I came in and met with him the first time, the, the thing at the end of the day that we both realized was that was just way too easy. Um, we, we had a lot of the same philosophy. Uh, we used a lot of the same systems and software. Uh, we had a lot of the same core values from a person standpoint. Uh, and so we knew that that would transfer over to business as well. So from that standpoint, he did a really nice job of that. And then once we started working together, even the first day when we started meeting with clients, it just kind of flowed. But I would tell you, really, it's, it's primarily do the, do the people mesh from a kind of a belief standpoint, a, a frame of reference standpoint, before you can build a business with those two people. It's just not going to work otherwise. Since then, his son works for us. Uh, and it's really my succession plan is then to sell to his son at some point in the future. And we're looking for additional advisors beyond that. So what it does from a client standpoint is suddenly you've got an advisor that's at 65 years old, 36 years in the business. You've got an advisor that's roughly 50 years old, about 16 years in the business. You've got an advisor that's 30 years old, about four or five years in the business, maybe six. But it gives us a really solid succession plan. They will know who they're working with for years to come. And it gives slightly different personalities along the way as well. So it allows us to really fit with different clients along the way. It doesn't mean we always get along and we always agree, but we have really found that we're good at talking those things out and working through those issues if they come up. 
we just have to address them early on if they do come up. Very healthy business model, for sure. Brian, let's shift gears and talk about uh, your bio says a good plan is about so much more than money. It's about goals and dreams. Explain that motto and what you believe it provides to your clients. Well, we look at money as a tool. That's all it is. And, and the amount of money you need clearly is directly related to those goals and dreams. Not everybody needs a fancy car or a vacation home somewhere or extravagant vacations or whatever. Some folks just want to spend time with the grandkids. Uh, some folks just want to have time with, with family and friends and, and so forth. So realistically, it's not about the money. If you can identify what that goal is, what really makes people happy, what they want to do with their, their extra time, their, their retirement time, if you can identify those goals early on, then you continually talk about those goals. The money is a tool to help them achieve that, but that's all it is. And so it's really not about the money. Uh, and we tell clients that all the time. I understand that I'm in the business of trying to help you earn money, but it's not about the money. It's about what the money can provide for you and how it can help you achieve those goals later in life. It's about lifestyle, honestly, not money. Yeah, you're a life coach more so than just a financial professional when it comes to how you work with your clients. Often, yes. So um, take that and your ensemble structure and talk to us about whether or not that is, assists in any way in generational planning. Do you have multiple generations that you and your colleagues serve and has, I would think, goals planning, and having the structure of different generations within your organization has to make a client feel comfortable that you can serve their family for multiple generations. We hope so. And, and really, we do. We, we have got several parents and then adult children as clients. And, and we see that developing even, even younger now. Because we have a 30-year-old, roughly, financial advisor, he connects much better with those 25 to 40-year-old clients. And so even that age range where maybe my partner and I aren't as good at identifying with and connecting with those folks, he's much better at that. And so it does help to have that ensemble structure for that generational planning. We, we find that as we move forward and my partner's clients are getting older, and unfortunately that means that some of them pass away, it's interesting to watch how much of that money we keep after that client's gone. And obviously, if you already have the children as clients, more of it's going to stay. And so we, we do work really hard at that. But even when we don't have the children, we have been pleasantly surprised at how much of that money has stayed with us when the parents are gone. So it doesn't always happen, but it is important in our practice because we have to continually refill that, that book, right? I mean, as those clients get older and, and they're gone, we have to constantly replace all of that book. And if we've already got the kids as clients, then it makes it much, much easier. You talked earlier about perhaps adding some other financial advisors to the business. Um, what type of financial advisor would you be looking for to round out the team? I would really like to have a female financial advisor. We don't currently have one. And I think it's... Uh, I think it would really help the practice if we did. So, you know, again, if, if it's a young female that we brought into the practice, that would be great. 
Uh, we think we do things a little differently. I'm sure everybody thinks they do things differently, but we think we do things a little differently and it would be nice to be able to train somebody in the way we do it and just bring them up in our practice. The other thing about that is I think it's really, really difficult for young people to start in this business anymore. You can't go knock on doors or cold call or, or whatever it is that we all did when we started. And so for somebody to come in the business and make enough money to survive is almost impossible. So you've got to be able to bring somebody in and pay them a salary and help them along till they get to the point that they are self-sustaining if they're going to survive in the business. So, I, you know, I would say a, a young female advisor would fit our business very, very well. Hopefully we can find that. I'll keep that in mind. I bump into them now and then. So there you go. <laughs> very inspiring. Brian, you also hold the certified financial planner designation. How important has that been to the success of your business? I think very important. Uh, it's, it's not so much the letters after the name. They do a good job of, of advertising. And so I think that that one is probably more recognized than some of the others. But it's really about the ability to recognize when you need to go look something up. You can't possibly remember all of that. But you can remember that, hey, there's something about that particular subject that I need to go look at because I remember when I was doing Certified Financial Planner that that came up. So from that standpoint, I think it's important. From the standpoint with clients that you can tell them, listen, we are committed to always educating ourselves. We are committed to staying on top of our craft. I think it's important. You talk a lot about continuing ed and, and how you continue to study throughout your career. And so we've made the decision in our practice that every advisor will have a Certified Financial Planner designation. Uh, in fact, if they don't, they will never have ownership. And so it is a way for us to encourage the younger advisors as they come in that it's a good idea to go get it and to become certified uh, because we can tie it back into their future in some way. Uh, I've had other designations as well that I've let go. Uh, I think the Certified Financial Planner is probably the most complete that I have found, especially for the portion of the market that we're in, where we're doing financial planning and money management. Practical and useful, which is key. I think a lot about um, the CFP designation as opposed to the securities registrations that so many of us have to get. And think about how much of that material you've basically never used again after you walked out of that room and got the you passed message, right? Exactly. Um, so to your point, ongoing life learning is really important and it's especially nice when it's something you can put to use later. Yes. That's great. So uh, Brian, you've been an active member of our Practice Management Advisory Council. Our councils are really important to Cambridge. We spend a lot of time reaching out and trying to get the voice of our client so that we aren't just reinventing the wheel and a wheel that nobody wants to put on their vehicle. Can you discuss what made you want to get involved with one of our councils and some of the initiatives you worked on as a part of the Practice Management Council? Sure. We, we came to Cambridge in 2017. And so we started in the RPM program, the Real Practice Management program in 2018. And my business partner and I did it together the first year. I have continued through. Uh, and it really was a, it was a good timing for us because I bought a large portion of his book in 2020. And so it forced conversations between the two of us um, about things like core values and, and succession planning and, and all of those things that maybe we wouldn't have taken the time to think about 
had we not been an RPM. And so, and even marketing plans and budgets and all of that kind of stuff that we still do to this day. So from the experience that we had through RPM, it became very evident to me that Cambridge was a little different than where we had been before. Uh, not only do you get the classroom stuff, but it was the monthly calls with coaches. Uh, I can't tell you how valuable those monthly calls with coaches were. Uh, and I still talk to my coaches. It's not as, as organized as it once was, but, but I still talk to them on a regular basis. And I still talk to what they call the accountability partners on a regular basis. Folks, uh, other advisors that, that we had calls with and, and scheduled on a regular basis. So I, I think that the value that we saw in RPM is what drove me to be on the advisory council. And so from the advisory council standpoint, really, that's the one I've been on is practice management. And we talked a lot about what other types of programs Cambridge could do to maybe help younger advisors, for instance. Uh, again, it's difficult as a young advisor to get connected into a group. And so if you had a bunch of advisors that were in a similar kind of situation in their career, uh, it would make a lot of sense to put those folks together so that they had a, a group that they could soundboard off of. So those are the types of things that we've done with practice management. And it's been, it's been a great experience for us. Absolutely wonderful. That's, that's good to hear. It's great to know that our investments in that area are paying off. What we can see on paper is that the growth rates of those that participate in RPM and other practice management coaching initiatives have a significantly higher growth rate than the average Cambridge advisor. So for us, we know it comes down to engagement and RPM might not be the best engagement for everyone because you do have to make a time commitment, but some sort of engagement where you can network and accountability is a great word, someone's holding you accountable, whether that be a peer or a coach seems to be a really successful ticket. So I'm glad that it worked for you. It worked very well. So is there anything else about your business that you think the audience should hear primarily to add to their business if they're already a financial professional to help augment um, some ideas that you've come up with, you and your partners that have been really successful for you, or some inspiring words for those people that are really considering getting into our business? From our standpoint, we, we talk a lot with clients about process and balance. Uh, everything we do from a financial planning, risk tolerance, uh, investment management, all of that is run on an extremely strict process. Uh, it's not, there's no room for we're going to make a decision this way or that way. It's this is how the process is run. This is exactly what we're going to do. And, and what we've, the reason we've done that and what we figured out from that is it provides clients with a, uh, some assurance that it's getting done the same way every time. It doesn't matter if you're a $100,000 client or if you're a $10 million client, you're getting treated the same across that board. And I think that's important to clients. Clients need to understand that they are important to you even if they're one of your smaller clients. So from that standpoint, I would say process is extremely important and we talk about it a lot. Balance, uh, and it's funny, I'm not as good at balancing my, my work and personal life as I preach to my clients. But, but we talk a lot about balance and it's not just in work and personal life. It's not just in the amount you save versus the amount you spend on stuff you don't really need, I guess. But, but it's about the types of things that you invest in. You know, we wanna look at everything and make sure that you're balanced across the different types of accounts. Um, we wanna make sure you have, you know, your, your taxable money, your tax-free money, your tax-deferred money, 
and that it's balanced out so that when we get to the point of distribution and withdrawal, that we've got choices and we know how to go about doing some of that. Uh, so I would, I would tell you that those are the two things that we talk a lot about with clients. And I think it's important that if advisors aren't doing those two things, that they find a way to incorporate they incorporate those two things. Great tips. Thank you for sharing. So also a beautiful segue into my last question, even though you said you're not very good at balancing in your, per, in your personal life. Um, as our session wraps up, what seems to be really important to our listeners is to understand a little bit about you as a person instead of as they're listening, just thinking these are all you know, financial planners, investment advisors, whatever they may call themselves that have zero lives. And we're never going to attract anybody to our business if we don't share that. If, if I could, if I wanted to have balance, I could. Maybe that's the best question for you. But talk to us a little bit about um, what you do in your free time when you find that you're leveraging that. Uh, several things, actually. I, I enjoy anything mechanical. Uh, you know, mechanical things are, are, are neat. They either work or they don't. And if they don't, there's a reason they don't. You can identify that and you can fix it. Uh, that's, that's one area of life where you can control whether it works or not. And so whether it's a, you know, I own a, a 33-year-old motorhome, uh, I work on it constantly because as you can imagine, it's always broke. Uh, so, so from that standpoint, I really enjoy that and it relaxes me. So the mechanical side of it, I like very much. Uh, we also live in a very, very social neighborhood. And so we do an awful lot inside the neighborhood. And it's, um, we've got a, a group of friends that we often do group dinners with. Um, we've got wine society, we've got chef's dinner, we've got all of the things that we can get out from the house and go do and enjoy being around folks. Uh, and it serves two purposes. Number one, it's extremely relaxing. Number two, you get to know an awful lot of people, which is never a bad idea in this business. So it's, um, it serves both purposes, it's balanced. Yes, yes, and who's we? Who do you do this with? My wife, Heather, and I spend a lot of time together. And so uh, been married 23 years and been together for 30. Congratulations. So, uh, we, we thank you. So we enjoy doing that together. She doesn't like working on the motorhome so much, but the social stuff at home, she enjoys. I think the motorhome mechanical description is really fascinating because as I was listening to you, even though it probably seems very different, um, the way you approach a financial complex situation for your clients might very well be the same skill set that you're using when you're trying to figure out how to get that motor home fixed is there's a solution out there to every problem just takes some time to work through that problem and figure out what the solution is it's always problem solving and, and mechanics will teach you to be very patient and and to work through those those potential solutions uh, I laugh at my wife Heather because she will often come in while I'm working on something and I'm just sitting there she's like what are you doing and I'm like, I'm contemplating. I'm figuring it out. I'm going through the options in my head. I'm going to find a solution. I just don't have it yet. It's the same thing. You're right. It's absolutely the same thing. Yeah, I love it. That's great. Well, Brian, thank you for joining my show. Thanks for being a great example of Cambridge Stronger. We're very honored to have you as one of our clients here at Cambridge. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with our listeners today. Thanks, Amy. I enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on 
Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app.